Our gospel lesson today is found in the second half of Matthew chapter 6, reading verses 19 through 34. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light, but if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come today, we do ask for your help. We ask that you would send out your light and your truth, that your spirit would give us understanding of everything that you have revealed to us through your Son. Free us from our lesser loves and orient us to you. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. And for you to speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. In his novella, The Pearl, John Steinbeck tells the story of Kino, an impoverished pearl fisherman living on the Mexican coast on the Gulf of California in the small city of La Paz. One day, out on the Gulf, Kino locates a very large pearl the largest that had been ever seen in that part of the world. And back in the village, he and his wife, Juana, were overcome with excitement. Steinbeck explains that as they looked at the pearl, in the surface of that great pearl, Kino could see dreams form. The dreams were limitless opportunities, everything that this pearl stood for and what it could open up for them and their young and small family. 
If you're familiar with the story, you know that the pearl cost him everything. Steinbeck explains that something black and evil was released into the village. People began to steal and people began to chase after him. He loses his canoe, he loses his home, and then he even loses his own young son to the pearl. In the end, he arrives back on the coast where he looks at the pearl one last time and he decides to throw it back into the gulf from where it came. Steinbeck writes this as he looks at the pearl. It was gray and ulcerous. The pearl was ugly, like a malignant growth. Described for us here something cancerous, something that is malicious and devastating, something that takes life. This was the point of Steinbeck's fable or his parable. That which once held out the promise and hope of life, of giving us something, was something that only stole it, took it away, and destroyed it. He highlights for us the danger of money and possessions. Jesus shares that same concern. He speaks about money and possessions in his Sermon on the Mount. In verse 24, he says it very plainly for us. You cannot serve God and money. The word translated money is a difficult one for us. Actually, Matthew does not translate it into the original Greek either. He just left the plain Aramaic word that Jesus himself would have said. It's the word that we often see sometimes there, mammon. Mammon just simply means our money, but not just physical money, but also our possessions. It's all of our wealth, the stuff that sustains our lives. And Jesus warns us of the danger of that mammon, of money and possessions, explaining that money and possessions have a unique power to enslave us, to own us. And so one of the most important things for us to hear from Jesus this morning is that our bank accounts, our wardrobes, our investments, our homes, and our attitude towards all of these things, all of our mammon, that this is not neutral. That it's not ground that as disciples of Jesus that we just get a pass on. No, Jesus... In this Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 5, he begins talking about the greater righteousness that is to characterize the life of his disciples. That's not a righteousness that we use to somehow climb the ladder up into heaven, but rather it's the righteousness of gratitude, intersected by the grace of God. This is now how we respond to God and reflect our love for him in the world. And Jesus is going to now apply that to our relationship to the stuff of life, the things that's, that sustain us, to God's creation and his good gifts inside of it. And so it's not neutral. It's not exempt. Jesus places a claim upon these things. And to hear him today, we need to consider three things. The first is that we'll consider the problem there is with money and possessions for us. The second thing is we'll look at the source of this problem, what is back behind that and underneath it. And finally, we'll consider Jesus' solution. So let's look at each of these briefly. 
First, in verses 19 through 24, we see our problem with money and possessions. To read again, Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus uses these verses to transition from what he was teaching last week, in which he speaks to practicing righteousness, and he speaks to the self-righteous behaviors in which people were using righteous practices to impress others, and he speaks to the wrongness of that. And then he uses the metaphor of treasure to now transition into talking literally about our money and our possessions. And he sums it all up in verse 21, saying, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That what we value in life is what we love. And that what we love is actually who we are. The heart, of course, not just being the organ of love, but the heart being who the person actually is at the core of their being. And so Jesus here gives a short, powerful testimony of the power of money and possessions over us. That when we fall in love with them, it actually directs and shapes who we are. In verse 22 and 23, he uses a more complicated metaphor that is more unfamiliar to us as he speaks of the eye, but it actually communicates the same thing. In the wisdom literature of the Bible, especially if you were to look in the 23rd or the 28th chapter of Proverbs, you would see that the eye is a metaphorical window between the inside and the outside of a person. The, an evil eye is typically connected with greed, and a good eye is connected with generosity and faithfulness. And so the point is, is that the eye in the book of Proverbs that Jesus seems to be picking up on reveals the condition of the human heart. And so this all points out the problem that we have with money and possessions. And the problem is not money and possessions themselves. This is the answer that we will often hear formulated. That the problem is money and possessions, and so you just need to be done with them and to distance yourself from them and not accumulate them. But this is actually not what Jesus is saying, because he's not indicating that the problem is money and possessions. You see, for Jesus, those were simply God's good gifts. They are part of his created world. It's his abundance and his benevolence that gives these things. And the problem is not God's created gifts. You see, our whole problem in the world is not with creation itself. God created a very lavish and benevolent place in which he was going to bestow blessings on us. And creation was not in the way of communing with him. Creation was actually the means of communing with God prior to the fall. And so it's not those created gifts that stand in the way. The problem is what the human heart does with those created gifts. The problem lies within us. It's our affection for money. 
It's our affection for possessions and what we get from them. And this is what Augustine explains so well about the human heart, that our loves, that is what we value and what we treasure, that our loves become disordered, that we are commanded in Scripture to love God because of his great and prior love for us in Jesus. And we are to then love everything inside the creation in relationship to God. But our loves do become disordered, and we begin to love things next to God or more than God himself. We displace him. And so things like money and possessions easily take his place. This is the tragedy that Jesus is warning us of here, and it's the danger of money and possessions. And friends, it's incredibly important as we talk about these things not to make one fatal conclusion, and that is that what Jesus is teaching here only applies to those who we would consider to be wealthy. One time as a young church planter in a very young church that had many different graduate students in it, one of the graduate students, it was Stewardship Sunday, and he said, well, it doesn't apply to me. I said, well, why is that? He said, because I don't have anything. And I thought, no, you've missed the point exactly. <laughs> you missed the entire teaching and perspective of Jesus. Because seeing being mastered by money doesn't mean you have a lot of it. Jesus is indicating that this has nothing to do with economic status. That actually the loves of the heart, that that can be of those with the most money that we can imagine, or can be amongst those who have none at all. Both poor and rich can be mastered by money, and Jesus' point is to take us into the heart for us to be able to assess what captures us. What do we value? What do we love? And so it leads to the important question, how can you know if your loves are disordered? How can you know if this has happened to you? And in verse 24, Jesus points us towards the answer, the way for us to search our own hearts and souls and to be known before God. Jesus says that it's possible, it's not possible, for a person to have two masters. Because two masters make different claims upon our lives. One master will ask this, and another will ask that, and you cannot appease them both. And this directs us to the answer. When are our loves disordered? Our loves are disordered when something else leads us to directly and very clearly and explicitly then disobey God. When we ignore what he says, when we're indifferent towards it, because we rather please this other master. At that point, our actions are revealing where our treasure really lies. The heart is deceitful, difficult to understand, Jeremiah tells us, that we don't even know ourselves. And friends, it is in our actions that we begin to uncover the heart and what's going on there. And we want to be sensitive to that. Be aware, allowing God to search us, allowing God to know us so that we can assess where and when and how are my loves 
disordered. And so this is what Jesus does. He identifies our problem with money and possessions. But second, he's going to take us further and deeper into that problem, taking us directly to the source of that problem in the heart. As you follow along in verses 25 through 32, Jesus speaks directly to what animates a person to be mastered by money and possessions. In this section of the sermon, Jesus focuses upon one topic. Six times he mentions that topic, and it is the word anxiety. In verse 25, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. In verse 27, he asks a question. In which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Another question in verse 28. Why are you anxious about clothing? Another question in verse 31. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? And finally, in verse 34, twice he mentions, therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. And this is what Jesus is indicating for us, that at the heart of our problem with money and possessions, there is anxiety for tomorrow that drives that and feeds it. All the uncertainties of tomorrow, they feed that corruption of our desire for money and possessions that anxiety in the heart prompts us to attempt to secure ourselves against worry. It will make you a greedy person who loves money more than God is what Jesus is saying. That when we shelter that anxiety in the heart about how tomorrow is going to go and where we be provided for, that this is turning us to greed and that will ultimately bring about darkness. That anxiety only feeds greed and it only ever expands our appetite, that it'll never be satiated. One of my friends sent a picture, a screenshot, of his login for his bank accounts. And it was somewhat humorous, but also somewhat profound and prophetic. Beneath the login, after the bank's title and name, it just simply said, own your tomorrow. That was the invitation. As you logged in, this is what you were doing. As you went to go check on your money, own your tomorrow. And friends, isn't that just it? Isn't that what we oftentimes think we can do? That we can shore it up, that we can own it. But what Jesus is saying here is that you can't. And as hard as it is for us to hear, it's incredibly important that you cannot. One reason we read all the way through Psalm 104 is the beautiful sense of dependence about what it means to be creaturely, what it means to be a creature made by God that the psalm presents to us, that our life hangs in the hands of God and is dependent upon him. And friends, we can't control our tomorrow. We don't know what tomorrow brings. It has its own troubles and anxieties, and it's enough 
for that day, not to worry about today. Jesus, of course, here is not speaking against that great proverbial tradition that extols the virtues of preparedness, of saving, and of planning. But he is talking about the heart attitude, the inner person, that there is a way to save and to plan and to be diligent and to be righteous. And there is a way of saving and planning and of diligence that comes from anxiety and greed. And I know that we desperately want a clear answer. Well, how do you know which camp you're in? And friends, you can't delineate it just that clearly. That it takes the hard work of prayer and searching and asking God to work within us. But the one thing we can't do is we can't own our tomorrow. The source of our problem is related to that anxiety. And we don't want to be that fool who's storing up for ourselves treasure upon the earth. We don't want to be found in that way. And so this takes us to Jesus' final point in chapter 6, the solution to this problem. Verse 33, he draws us into the solution, but seek first the kingdom of God and God's righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And so there's two things that Jesus commands us to seek. First, we're to seek God's coming kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. That is that Jesus is inviting us into the great story of God as to what he is doing to fix the broken and tired creation inside which we live. That Jesus is asking us to be consumed with that great project to make it the thing that we exalt above all others, the thing that captures our passions and our energies and our focus, that this is our primary commitment to live for, to seek the kingdom of God, to seek the reign of God and what God is doing in the world. Second thing is, he says that we're to seek God's righteousness. That is, that we're to seek building that kind of life that reflects the fact that we know and experience the grace of God. This is the kind of life that Jesus has just been building in chapter 5 and chapter 6, and now in, as he moves into chapter 7. We're to seek to build that kind of life that is a response of gratitude to the grace that has intersected us in the preaching of Jesus. It's not a self-righteousness, but the response of gratitude. It's a life in which we take God's law seriously, wanting it to work not just on that external basis, but spiritually deep down within us, as we saw in chapter 5. It's a life in which we pursue practicing righteousness, but we don't do so in order to receive the praise of others. We don't do so in order to receive accolades. We do so in order to commune with God and to please Him. And it's a life in which we know how to relate to earthly goods without being consumed by them. This is what Jesus is saying about the life of righteousness, that it knows how to traffic in the world's goods, but without being overwhelmed and our loves being disordered. And this is where Jesus is taking us in the solution to this problem a problem that is down in the heart and is driven by anxiety and our fears. Jesus is saying that we address anxiety and greed, 
not by focusing directly upon them. I don't know the last time that you tried it, but when you were worrying and you just told yourself, stop worrying, it normally is highly ineffective. Doesn't work. And Jesus here, he's addressing us in our anxiety by displacing it with something greater. He's displacing it with this kingdom of God and with this great pursuit of righteousness in which God is reforming us and rehabilitating us and remaking us in his image. When we're overtaken by anxiety and greed in this life, it's because we need a bigger picture and we desperately need to be rescued and drawn out of that. And so, friends, we want to arrest ourselves not simply by saying, stop doing this, but rather filling our hearts and minds and our lives with this greater end, the kingdom of God and all that God wants for us and all the pursuits that we don't want to be small-minded. This is what Jesus is saying the solution is. And so what we deeply want is to let the life of the kingdom be what directs and governs our life all the hopes and dreams and aspirations that that kingdom holds. Because we are like Kino, that very humble fisherman who stood on the edge of his canoe and saw this great pearl lying at the bottom of the ocean floor. And he saw in that pearl the hopes and dreams of his family. Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid. And then for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. You see, friends, you've seen all the hopes and dreams of the world as well. But they're not in mammon. They're in the kingdom of God. Riches and grace and benevolence and lavishness that we cannot imagine. And it's what frees the Christian from those lesser loves and the loves of this world. Because there's something immensely more valuable that we've been given freely as a gift through Jesus. And so buy into that treasure. And buying into that treasure displaces the love of every other treasure and puts it in its right place. And along the way, it kills anxiety and greed. And we're free, free to love God, free to love God above everything else, and then free to love everything else appropriately. This is the life that Jesus has for you. Let's take him up on it. Let's pray. Father, as we hear the voice of our Lord Jesus today, we find all of his teaching challenging to our core. He redirects us and he knows us. He examines and probes the heart in ways that are uncomfortable. And yet he does so as a gracious physician. And so God, we ask for that work to continue by your spirit in us, that you help us assess and to know where our loves are disordered, where anxiety and greed gets the best of us, and we treasure things above you. and Help us to find the solution, to embrace it, to seek after 
your great kingdom and your righteousness, to put this above all else and to find in that quest the healing of things within us. Be at work in us, O God. Set us free. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.